Baby Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me are my co-hosts, Andy. Hello. And Sam. Pause for applause. Hello. This week, Sam remembers laughter, Andy turns and turns through the same old story, and I adapt to play twice with one crucial difference. That remembers laughter thing is definitely not a thing. No, that's a thing. I added it in there. Before. Remember uh, in the film where he's like, does anyone remember laughter? I don't remember. This okay, so should I say Sam doesn't remember laughter? This is great because what I'm covering uh, features a character who famously forgets how to laugh. So. Okay, that's fine. Keep okay. It. Don't care. Sam doesn't remember laughter. In case you want me to change it. I'll just leave all that in there. It's fine. Okay. Um, okay. All so right. Good deal. <laughs> we are going to start off with Sam's monkey for the week. So, Sam, tell us a little bit about what you did and why it was a monkey. I have clearly forgotten how to podcast. Hmm. We were in Salt Lake, and we became Mormons. Tell me. Tell me. Well, first of all, Mormons love podcasting. Oh. Okay. I did not want to know probably that. Like, sounds like well, a terrible... You do now. Probably like one of the biggest demographics of podcasters is Mormons. So, you know that thing where you think you're the only person who does something and then you realize somebody else does it, too? That's how I make friends. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, this one's for you, Jack. All right. So, uh, I have, for years, done a very poor job of this, but I look to see what's leaving a streaming service and say... Gosh, I I need to watch that before it expires. And so since we've been subscribing to the Criterion channel, mm. I've been paying real close attention to that. So this monkey is brought to you by the Criterion channel. Please sponsor us. <laughs> uh, no, you don't need to. Like You just need to keep yourself afloat. Sure. Okay. Uh, Sam, Sam, Sam. If we can get a sponsor, what? we take that sponsor. I will sell my soul. I cannot be responsible for Criterion Channel going out of business. I, that cannot be on me. So go to Criterion.com slash monkey to get your free trial offer. <laughs> Enter Hear No Evil for 15% off. 15% off of what? I don't know. I don't know. Something. I'm sure you'll get 15% off something. Well, tell us about this film that you can no longer find on the Criterion Collection because it left. <sighs> the the film that we are talking about today is the 1976 rockumentary concert film extravaganza, The Song Remains the Same. That's right. We're talking about Led Zeppelin. We're talking about... The, the concert film that those crazy kids filmed over three nights in Madison Square Garden back in 1973. So, this is a Led Zeppelin concert film? Uh, well, I sort of. So, wait. It's a concert film. <laughs> wait. <laughs> what? Sort of? Again, the footage for this film was shot in 1973. Mm hmm. Except for the stuff that was uh, except for the stuff that was shot in 1974, it was shot over three days in Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. Except for the stuff that wasn't shot in Madison Square Garden, it was shot in Baltimore or Shepperton. 
it's a rockumentary in that it's part documentary, some of which is real, but some, some of which, which is, is not. <laughs> right. So we have footage, concert footage from Madison Square Garden, except for pickups the next year in Shepard and Studios, during which John Paul Jones had to wear a hideous wig. There is stuff that shot around Madison Square Garden, except none of it's Madison Square Garden. It's all Baltimore. There are intercuts of fictional stories that go along with the music, as well as one non-fictional where their money was stolen out of a hotel safe. So I guess it's a concert film. So it's kind of like a Spinal Tap thing? Uh, Yeah. It's so bizarre that I feel like it's either got to be satire or you have to be on a lot of drugs to understand it. Well, this is Led Zeppelin we're talking about here. Yeah. So... Okay, so I, I get the idea of a concert film, and I get the idea of like a documentary about a concert. I've seen those films before. But what it sounds like is that there's also, I say this as someone who has actually seen this, there's a lot of weird non-footage stuff in this. Right. Wait, 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 wait. When you say weird non-footage stuff, that sounds like yes. this isn't actually video footage. Well, it might not be. Oh, no. <laughs> Is this like Yellow Submarine? Does it just cut to bizarre animation? Yes. Yes, it Uh, is like that. Not animated. Not not animated. But but it is. It does cut to these like bizarre, like just give us some examples of genres that they play around with in some of these things. Okay, this is nominally a concert, around which is some filmic stuff. It's meant to be part film, part concert. And they did a terrible job. Let's just say that up front. Okay, so, so it's bad. The, it. uh, yeah. So the live footage is pieced together from four different things, right? Three nights in New York, one night uh, in Shepparton the next year. They had to, back in 2007, went back and redid the film, basically. What you can see now is basically, I've read... Not a remaster so much as just a recompilation. Shots have to be fuzzed out. You cut to the crowd. You do weird like screenshots with effects because they don't have footage to sync up to audio for everything. So that's that's the first thing. But they thought they were going to make this but make it art, right? So there is a weird frame narrative about the mob, like organized crime in England uh, that may or may not be happening at the same time as anything else. We get to see them hanging out, doing the stuff they do at home before they're rushed off to Madison Square Garden to do a show the next day. Like, they try to build a narrative around this. And then, and then, and then, each member of Zeppelin gets their own fantasy sequence during a song. Would you, Andy, would you like to know about these fantasy sequences? Honestly, I'm kind of afraid to. <laughs> you should be. So John Paul Jones. Pope, with a Pope John Paul weird Jones. I, yes. page boy, but longer haircut, gets a, a fantasy sequence where he's basically the Phantom of the Opera, which, by the way, the Phantom of the Opera, the musical didn't exist yet, right? 
So it's the book. So Homeboy's or like Lon Chaney. Like yeah, 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 yeah. He's going and doing some real. Yeah, there's a. I think there's. If I recall correctly, there's like a graveyard and a, and a woman and weird. Uh, <laughs> but Ro- then he goes home and like takes the mask off and he's just like right. He's just a normal person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. And so uh, it's so weird. Uh, okay, Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page is off doing like an epic sword and sorcery thing, and he's like climbing a mountain to get to this person. And when he gets up, he sees that the person is an old version of himself. And then that old version becomes younger and younger until he's a fetus. And then he gets older and older until he's old again. This is the material we're working with. Okay, but right. the- Robert Plant is going full on Lady of the Lake. And and he's not the Lady of the Lake. He's like... Although he's beautiful enough to be. I have to say, the one uh, thing about this film, Robert Plant was a beautiful person in 1973. That hair alone. And he's rocking the, the high heels and the jeans yeah, and the mm-hmm, open shirt. Mm-hmm. And a sock, probably. Yeah, just in until he smiles, probably. and then he's got real British rocker teeth. Yeah. Oh, what the British Book of Smiles? So, um, this is the same band that wrote Misty Mountain Hop, right? Yes. Yes. This is the the same band that wrote uh, Deep in the Minds of Moria, or Deep in the Misty. Oh Ma- yeah. yeah, yes. All yeah. very so, obsessed with Tolkien. So, very obsessed with sword and sorcery. So this is of no shock, but it feels like what you're describing to me. Honestly, feels like a Sid Barrett, um, Roger Walters, um, Pink Floyd bit. Yeah, except okay. So yes, except there's a there's a story, and I think Waters has verified that it's true. Um, Sid Barrett came in, I believe, during the Wish You Were Here sessions, which are you know Shine On Crazy Diamond is about him. And he was like having a brief moment of semi lucidity. <sighs> Poor Sid. And Barrett. was just like, "This is cool." Yeah, this would be like if Sid Barrett came back and was like, "This is like weird bullshit, even for me." Like this, I'm crazy. This is crazy. Let's not do this. Also, this is just bad. Like I've seen <laughs> good versions of this. This is a bad version. Like, it's just not I, well done. I told Tessa before that this was a not recommend, so she's unleashed now. Oh. I think, she, I think you were going to be nice about it I before. I will but. say, though, that I was impressed with the actual show, so I am curious to know what your thoughts are about the music and the concert elements of this. So just a brief rundown real fast. Uh, with all this nonsense happening between and during, the music we get, we get rock and roll, we get Black Dog, Since I've Been Loving You, No Quarter, which is where we get the John Paul Jones Phantom of the Opera, the song, remain, the song Remains the Same, The Rain Song, which is where we get Robert Plant's Fever Dream, Dazed and Confused is like a 37 thousand hour version of the song it's actually 25 minutes they play right. dazed and confused for 25 minutes and and you need to know that like dazed and confused zeppelin is my favorite zeppelin mm. right like you shook me 
when the levy breaks, oh. dazed and confused. Like that's my jams right there. Wait, like, sorry, I was just thinking when you said when you shook me, I was thinking of the uh, Spinal Tap no. song. No. Yeah. I also, by the way, I my favorite. I think my favorite Zeppelin album is truly "End Through the Outdoor," mm. and it shouldn't be, but it is, which is their last recorded album. So of course, nothing on this is represented. Stairway to Heaven. Yeah. You have to have Stairway to the he- Stairway to Heaven. And if you've never seen Jimmy Page with his double neck guitar and his violin bow absolutely or his cello bow. Absolutely yeah. destroying a cello bow. If you you've never seen I mean, it is the master of work. Yeah, I it will say like, this yeah. movie I mean, I already knew that Jimmy Page was one of the greatest guitarists of all time. Obviously, just from listening to Zeppelin. This show reminded me of that in some pretty visceral ways. But so just quickly rounding out with the last three songs, because the anti-penultimate song is Moby Dick. The <laughs> the 37,000 hour drum solo, which is great. By the way, John Paul Jones gets like a big organ thing during his thing too. Everybody gets some nice little solos except for Plant. He doesn't well, really. Plant is like the star. He's just like strutting Whatever. around the stage, looking gorgeous. <laughs> that my favorite. With his vocals. Like, would we would we call it peacocking for real? <laughs> no, I mean seriously. It's, it is what it is, right? Yeah, it is what it is. Like, he's look what just... I did for you. <laughs> oh man, I can't I can't wait to talk about um, <laughs> anyway. horniness in my. So, um, anyway, the funny thing about Moby Dick. First I'm just of all, saying, he's like I, a rock and roll star that is also an angel. Can, I'm I, gonna I have been trying to tell you, Andy. Do you want to know? Yes, please, please. The the fever dream of a fantasy sequence that John Bonham has during his drum solo from you two. No. Oh, that's this is Bon Jovi. Okay, yes, yes. What 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 fever sequence does Bon Jovi have? The fever sequence that John Bonham has. I hold on to your chair. He's working on cars in a garage, and then he races one real fast. Hmm. Hold on, hold on. I need to verify if that's something and, anyone like has ever everybody done gets to do. Everybody gets to do their <laughs> wildest dreams. We have Phantom of the Opera. We have epic mountain climbing fantasy sequence. We have Lady of the Lake fantasy sequence. And we have drag racing. Okay. Not racing in drag, just drag racing. It might be racing in drag. That would also be fun. He has a really neat t-shirt. It's like rhinestone studded. And he all wore of their, it. All of their costumes are pretty yeah. fabulous. So he wore it every night of recording. So he was the only one who was actually in, in like... Uh, continuity? Continuity for the whole thing. Only one. He is a professional. Okay, so until where he died. So I I need to. That wasn't professional. I need to uh to to explain my my relationship with Led with Led Zeppelin because uh it's very small. Um, do you have one? Not really. But Black Dog was one of the first songs that I played on guitar and learned how to play, and it is so much fun to play, and it makes you feel so. Like you, you are a rock star. Have you seen the opening monologue of Saturday Night Live that David Duchovny hosted, where he played "Over the Hills and Far Away"? No. Friends listening, 
If you have not seen what I'm referring to, from memory, David Duchovny, if I recall, says basically they let you do anything you want. So I wanted to do this. And he gets out his acoustic guitar and plays the opening of Over the Hills and Far Away. And Fa- if you famously if you uh, know what happens with their rights. Right. If you know what happens next, you're already laughing. If not, you should look it up. But what what I wanted to say is uh so I, I don't like know the veracity of the statement. But my understanding is Monty Python and the Holy Grail was funded in part by people like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. Oh. I don't know. And knowing knowing that like, oh, these British rock stars funded bits of like Monty Python skits and their movies. This sounds like a Monty Python. Like it it sounds It's they, not that good. But it's not that good. Is they the think it's trash. Wait, does Led Zeppelin? They, they don't trash? like it. Yes. Mm. Well, at least one of them does. Okay. Okay. So here's the thing. You think that this is trash, which it is. Right. Well, but would you want to actually go to the show? Okay. Like, did the show convince you that you wanted to go okay. if you could be there in 1973? All right. So here's the thing. And I think you know this. The 70s terrify me. <laughs> For good reason. At least this part. <laughs> like... I don't know. Like, in a different life, I could have been down with disco. But, I mean, like, I'm down with it now, but, like, down with it in the 70s. But this is terrifying. This is nightmare fuel. Like, going to Madison Square Garden with those people? It's scary. Wait, it's scary? I would be, I would be, I would, I I would be. See, I feel like like, it's queer paradise. That's what it felt like to me looking at the, like, all the men are, like, all dressed very androgynously see, see, like but it's... here's the thing here's the thing right so one i i go back to once upon a time in hollywood right because i think that's a really good i think it's a really good film because it really meshed with what i thought was happening at the end of the 60s where that counterculture was like a hair's breadth away from manson land like all of it it's this weird, uncanny valley. Don't look too closely because all the peace and love and good vibes and guitar solos are like, again, a hair's breadth away from like culty, the worst stuff. Hmm. And that's what I see when I look at 70s documents like The Song Remains the Same. Like they freak me out genuinely. That's why I don't like a lot of 70s film. The closer you get to the end of the decade, when you have, you know, because the first part of the 70s is really kind of a continuation or a hangover. You eventually have that kind of that segue into disco and punk, which I, ironically, punk is probably a much safer place than whatever this was. So, like, I watch this and I'm like, oh, I don't want this. I'm glad this is very far away from me. See, I love the, the the clothes and the fashion, all of that stuff. All the music too. I've never worn jeans those tight. Jeans that's that true. Tight. Never have. Those are very never tight have. jeans. Right, and that those are probably raw denim too. So yeah. that's not like your stretchy stuff that you kids wear. Sam, if you if you could go yes. back in time to any show, right? Any yeah one show. Um, you you don't have to give like the specific show, but to see a band play live at a certain point in time. Which band would you choose? 
And Tessa, this question's coming to you next, so be prepared. There's a couple that jumped to my mind immediately. The first is actually a Madison Square Garden show. It's Elton John, where John Lennon comes out with him. Okay. Because John Lennon has to be on the list for me. Okay. Uh, there's Queen Wembley 86. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know that there's any... There, I don't know that you can answer that question without saying that one. You ha- No, Queen Wembley 86. Okay. That is, that is the show... Tell me I'm wrong out there. Those are the two that hop to my mind. The thing is, live music is bad until at some point in the 70s, unless you're at like a small club show, right? Like, are we talking like I could be at a roadhouse where Robert Johnson's playing? Okay, I'd take that. Uh, Tessa, what? But, but I yeah. mean, like, you can't say, like, what you're trying to say is you can't really say the Beatles or the Monkees in the 60s because famously you couldn't hear the music over the screaming. Right. Right. In there's, those that, shows. there's that uh, weird unplugged in a record store show that Pearl Jam did in Switzerland. <laughs> yeah. There's the there's the, the famous Mama San show that they played also in Switzerland. I do that. Uh, maybe Pink Pop. For I a, know exactly for what a, I Yeah. Want. I um, remember what year it was. Nirvana, sometime. I don't know when. Hard to know. Okay. Soundgarden. All of those. But yeah, there you go. That's a list. Okay. What about you, Tessa? Oh, you want the Japan one? I'm trying to remember what year it was. Hold on. Yeah. That's a good answer, Tessa. Yeah. Okay. So I have a very straightforward answer to this. I want to see The Runaways live in Japan in 1977. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah. So. So, because I loved seventies rock. I love, especially like the the emergence of like gr- the all girl rock bands in the seventies, or like the mostly girl rock bands. And the Runaways is like the Runaways are like the quintessential like awesome cookie cutter. Yeah, girl but band. But they're born out of that that stuff I'm talking about. Yeah, but they have like closer. They're closer to punk. Um, well, right, but they're created they out of Zeppelin. that same exploitative, culty oh, thing, yeah, right? Yeah, no, I'm not trying to say, like, it's hard because, like, to like the Runaways is difficult because they were really exploited and, or they were really exploited and they were really, like, marketed as jailbait, which is, like, really uncomfortable, but their music is so good and, like, I don't know. I I discovered it as a child, like as a teenager, and I have always just loved it. I mean, Joan Jett comes out of that, uh, Sheree Curry, like, uh, you know, all of these people. And so I've just always loved it. And that specific show, I would just love to go see. So so you mentioned the two most prominent members, and I I know you really like Joan Jett and uh, didn't mention Lita Ford just now. Lita Ford. Yeah, I love Lita Ford. But uh, one of your things, I think, do a quick shout out because I don't think you mentioned it yet. So all the members of the band kind of like modeled themselves off of somebody who Sherry Curry really wanted to be David Bowie. Like that's who she like modeled herself off of. I'm trying to remember, Joan Jett wanted to be uh, Susie Quattro, but yeah, they all had like people that they specifically were emulating, which I think is really really cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. By the way, the doors at the whiskey. Watch that show before before he could actually turn around and face a crowd. I'd like that show. Andy, is there a show you would want to go to at a specific point in time? Yes. Um, yes, very much so. 
there is a I want to go to the show that the Who did, I think in 73 where Keith Moon got hit in the head by a beer bottle, got knocked out, and a fan came up and finished the song the entire concert with them. Violent. <laughs> uh it, I I mean I I I just want to see the Who at their right. peak. Right. Yeah. And at their peak. Um you know cuz I I believe that uh they have the best bassist of all time uh on their in their band. Um Fair. Yeah. So Sam, you would not recommend this though. You would recommend a lot of other concert I was, films, I think. I was worried that I wasn't going to have a whole lot to say about this. Uh no. Don't bother. If you want your live Zeppelin fix, listen to the 2003 triple live album, How the West Was Won. You get good, if not better, versions of, I believe, all of these songs. You also get the, you get your long, dazed, and confused solo. Uh, These are two West Coast shows from 1972. Uh, I believe it's Jimmy Page who said, this is Led Zeppelin representative of their best. Hmm. Not what they were doing by the time the song remains the same shows were recorded. So All right. don't bother. There you go, Andy. It's a don't recommend monkey. We don't have those very oh, often. Those are very rare. <laughs> I feel like we should have a, a sound effect for <laughs> don't recommend monkeys. Tessa. Andy, what did you do this week, and why was it a monkey? What have you done? What have you done this week? It sounds so accusing. I read a novella by the name of New Spring. Robert Jordan. Yes, by Robert Jordan. I am a really big fan of The Wheel of Time. We know this about you. This is a thing that is known. Yes. Uh, Oh, wait, wait, wait. For those of us who don't know what this is, because I've never heard of it, what is The Wheel of Time? The Wheel of Time is an epic is an epic fantasy story that is the evolution of fantasy that goes before or uh, that goes right after um, Tolkien, right? This is this is taking Tolkien and adapting the beautiful humanistic, uh, the the beautiful world building and effort and everything, but it's actually making the characters human and real and fully developed and not. Aragorn and not Gandalf and not Bilbo. This is a, it's not a sword and sorcery. Hey Andy. Yes. How is the Wheel of Time like mm-hmm. Journey's midnight train going anywhere? Because it has an ending and it reaches it and it's beautiful and I love it and I hate you for It for, goes uh, on and on and on and on. Oh god. It does. It it, it does it does go on and on and on and on. Okay, so this is part of the Wheel of Time universe, sort of. I mean, yeah, yeah, it is definitely part of the Wheel of Time universe. It is, um, it is important to the Wheel of Time universe, but also it is not important to the overall story. This is like history before the wheel was invented, right? This is like pre-wheel. Uh, this is like twenty years before the wheel. Yeah, the wheel oh, started spinning. Right. Um, okay. So why did it take uh, you so long to read it then? If you're such a huge Wheel of Time fan. Listen, The Wheel of Time as a series, the audiobooks alone, which are how I devour long fantasy series, is audiobooks. Without this, take 18 days, and I'm trying to, to do the math here. Anyway, 
eight, like 18 and a half days of, uh, of time. Wow. Uh, they're long. They are very long. Yes. Yes. They are long. And um, while I think books six through 10 could probably be condensed into one book. It's, it's true. It it is it is it is very long. It is very meandering, but it is uh, embraced in the world. And the thing is, this is a prequel for characters who are already fully fleshed out without it, right? This this doesn't need to to be. This feels like a little. This is this is this is the wrong way to say it because I do not believe that that this is the case. It feels like a little bit of a cash grab. Okay. Ha- well, just having a prequel feels like a little bit of a cash grab. It is, is it, not. I was going to say, is it more or less of a cash grab than the George R. R. Martin uh, like compendium about the? Uh, is it the Targaryen? I don't even know. Like, yeah, is, I own this book de- and I haven't read it. <laughs> it is definitely, definitely, definitely much, much, much less than that. Um, so, I, I just had to get that out out here this is uh filling in the backstories of characters who um would otherwise not get a backstory and it's 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 very very interesting to get that and which characters are these for for people who maybe are familiar with the series but aren't familiar with new spring new spring is the backstory of how moraine damadred met land mandragoran and suan sanche Besties. Besties. Right, right. Which, which, th- this is the story of how these, um, these characters. And for those of you who don't care or don't know much about Wheel of Time, Moraine is the Gandalf-like figure. She is the wise, the mentor. Right. She, she is the the wise, wise and mentor, but also the magic user. She knows more than she's letting on. Um, she's frustrating. <laughs> In in all in all the right ways, I think I think that the magic users in this world are fascists. The Aes Sedai, oh yeah, the Aes Sedai, hundred yeah. percent. The Aes Sedai are fascists. Um, well, that's and why they're they, different it, flavors of fascist. That's what's interesting. Like they have their different different colors of fascist, right? Well, Is actually what I should say. Spoiling anything for Sam, although Sam refuses to read any more of these, or for our listeners who may like not want to be spoiled that that is a conversation that happens throughout the series and like the Aes Sedai have to undergo some pretty major like upheavals so right but even throughout those upheavals the 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 characters who are the correct characters who are are in charge their the way their way of thinking starts to become like the Aes Sedai they are arrogant to a fault yeah I agree it is it is one of the strengths of Jordan that uh because of the length of of this series you see these characters evolve over time but you never really notice the change that yeah. that is the thing like you're just all of a sudden you're 12 books in and you're like wait when did this character become like this i don't remember a specific time where they changed but it feels like the characters have grown it's it's fascinating but yeah it doesn't feel jarring like it doesn't feel like oh they suddenly made a decision they wouldn't make before it's like oh right. yeah it makes sense that all of these experiences they've had would have led them to this particular decision right and one of the joys of the wheel of time is seeing characters who have been separated for books and books and books finally meet again 
Yeah, it's true. So I'm going through uh, one of the things I do every night because I am a grad student and I I cannot be at the computer any longer. I sit down with my wife and we do a jigsaw puzzle. While we're doing this jigsaw puzzle, Aww. we're listening to the audiobooks of the Wheel of Time. Oh, that's nice. I like that. Yes, yes. Uh, we we are on. We are now on book thirteen, which for my money is the second best book in the series. It's very good. Only beaten only by book four, which is just an amazing book. And also, uh, I'm getting to experience, you know, vicariously, Sarah going through this fantasy series that is important to me for the first time. So it's a it's a Sarah monkey. It, it, it is a ceremony, but I have never bothered to go through New Spring. And the reasons why I've never really bothered to go through New Spring, one, when you're going through this book, it feels, when you're going through these audiobooks, it feels like a bad idea to spend 12 hours in the past when you just want to go to the future. Right. That makes sense. Because you already know where these characters are and what their relationships mm-hmm. are by the time you get right. to... So I guess that would be my question for you is that like for people who want to do that, who want to just go on, what would the point of this be? Really? That that's the thing is the point is world building. The point is understanding better where it's going on. But also the point is um, that this came out in 2004 when the wheel time was starting to wrap up slowly before Robert Jordan's uh, untimely death. And, this was a good way to like spend time with characters who have been neglected in the story f- uh, for, for whatever reason, the, you know, um, Lan and Moraine and Swan have kind of taken, have kind of taken back seats to, to the playing of the story. So you're kind of wondering, well, how, how was it, you know, that all this came to be about? And it's fascinating. Um, Something about world building that I love and that I, I like, I, I get super passionate about. And Brandon Sanderson wrote it the best. He says, look, 10% of what you do for world building should be in your books. That's it. The other 90%, that is stuff you write for yourself to pull information as your characters need it or as the reader needs it. Mm-hmm. Because if, you, if you've written the entire history of this country... And you have the names of past leaders and stuff. And you have the reason like why the, the leaders stepped down or or when they died or, or whatever. You're able to make it so the characters who do live in this world can bring up those names instantly. If you don't have that, um, that if you haven't done that world building, you'll write around the names of past leaders and stuff. And that doesn't feel genuine to the world. So it's kind of like the Silmarillion to the Lord of the Rings. Like the plot, entire plot of Lord of the Rings only takes place on like one page of the Silmarillion. But the Silmarillion is like what Tolkien wrote as world building for Lord of the Rings. Right. And and this is and this is just uh the fun of seeing how uh Sawan and Moraine met, uh how they became absolute best friends, why they're planning this, why they make this their life's goal and really why Moraine is as untrusting as she is. Um, and how Lon and her develop a queer platonic relationship. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and even more importantly, though, and, and this is this is kind of what stunned me about this book. You can read this first. 
You can I read actually this did. before you're reading any of the real time. You can read this as a standalone book. As a standalone fantasy book, this is still good. Wait, you said earlier that it was a novella, but it's a Robert Jordan novella. So what, 400, 500 pages? Uh, 330. That's real that's, short for him. That's no novella. <laughs> short for him, though. I mean, for him, sure. But <laughs> for him, that's really more of a novelette or a really long short story. <laughs> uh, but but also another thing, and I, I really kind of want to, to look into trying to get this. Uh, they condensed this into a graphic novel. They do. And, I, I and, haven't seen it, but they do. And I'm really interested in that. Um the other thing, and like this is this is the one thing that I really wish. Uh, apparently, Jordan was considering doing a few other prequels, and one of them was focusing on uh, Tam Elthor. And that would have been that's cool. the book that I want. Yeah. Uh, but for anybody who who has Moraine and Lan and Swan in the positions that I hold for Tam Elthor, this is awesome. This is not something to be forgotten. This is this is great, but also it. If you're going through the the series, this distracts from the epic uh, the epic build up to the last battle, and you want to get to that last battle because it's the entirety of the last book. It's like eighty five percent of the last book is the last battle, is the battle at Hogwarts, but better and more important and more uh, thematic, and uh, it's gonna be great. I'm I'm looking forward so much to Sarah getting to see this. I also think that this is something that's good to bring up because I think there's been so much attention brought to Wheel of Time by the series, the the television series. But I also think, I mean, I've just been seeing a lot of people, I wouldn't say shipping Lon and Moraine because that's not what they're doing, but they really love the relationship between those two characters. And so, like, I could see this book for someone who hasn't read any of the books but loves the show. This would be a really good book if you want, like, more information about those yeah, two about about why they have you, you know why they have the incredible trust, the incredible bond, but also um, a yeah, just just the weirdest uh, thing. So the the I mean, it's fun, right? Like seeing Lan get into the the bath with Moraine and like it not being sexual is one of the funniest things. Yeah, and then you realize, oh yeah, warders have to protect their eyes to die at all times. Mm-hmm. And like even just like how he became a warder and yeah, it's it's good stuff. That 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 series really the the TV series has the highest highs and the lowest lows. It is ridiculous. I'm hoping the second season corrects it. All right, so you would recommend? I I, I recommend New Spring for anybody who is either even remotely interested in the wheel of time, but more importantly for people who just like fantasy, who just want a nice fantasy that has uh, an interesting plot point. Um, you know, yeah, it's it's fun. It's fun. It's good. I like it. You should like it, too. Uh, when Sam reads it, Sam will will uh, groan and realize, oh, I've wasted, you know, 334 pages. I could have been reading 334 pages about um, I don't I don't know. I'm trying to think of a Sam of a Sam book. Um, I'll tell you what, though. No, I have the real answer for this. After I finish the book, after I turn it in. I will. I'm going to finally read Brandon Sanderson. So there you oh. go. So there you go. I I will I will go from all oh. filler, two pages of killer to apparently all killer no filler. Um. Yep. Uh, so wait, wait. Do you mean the Sanderson Wheel of Times or no Mistborn? No. I Mistborn probably. Okay. 
Mistborn is I think Mistborn is the good start. starting point yeah, for I agree. Sanderson. But yeah, I, I like my fantasy where things happen. Yeah, no, I I, I completely understand. Um, if you like your fantasy where things happen, Sam, I have one one author who needs to be paid attention to, one author who had the best first book I've ever read. Who's that? It is my favorite book. It's Scott Lynch. He wrote The Lies of Locke Lamora. Oh, yeah. It I is, know that book. Yeah. It is unique in fantasy because it's set in a um, uh, a fantasy version of Venice, which, okay. believe it or not, not really done very often, but it's fantastic. <laughs> I'm very slowly reading through, not chronological publishing, but chronological, like when it happened, uh, all of Terry Brooks's books. So I read the Word in the Void trilogy. So Talked about Tessa. You did two things, or three things, is it? Is it... So usually I like to do only one thing per week because I really like to focus on just one thing. It's one of the strengths of this particular format, I think. But this is a situation where doing two things is appropriate because I watched two films, these three and the children's hour, and they are two films, one directed in 1936, the other one in 1961. They're both directed by William Wyler. Ooh. And they are both adaptations of the same play by Lillian Hellman, her 1934 play, The Children's Hour, also known in the UK as The Loudest Whisper. Okay, okay. Um, this segment is also brought to you by the Criterion Channel. It is, actually. When you need to watch a really good movie that's going to go off of streaming at the end of the month, and it's the end of the month, go to the Criterion Channel. We also have Armageddon. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tessa, uh, real quick, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite things to do is to watch a movie that's being remade by the same director. Yes, that it is so rare, but it does happen. And so it is fascinating to watch. Like, basically, he made this movie, these three, in 1936, and he adapted the play he adapted it in a certain way because it was 1936 and there are things in the play that he could not really talk about in 1936 and then uh, he, so this is like a Henry Ibsen situation he readapted yeah. it in 1961 and there is a crucial element of the original play that is missing in the these the first film these 3 that is mm. present in the children's hour and it significantly changes the end of the film so I cannot talk to you about that because I, I want people to actually watch this and I don't want to spoil anything. But it is very interesting to watch these two films because he is basically taking a second crack at it and to compare them and to think about how just changing one thing in the first film, like it makes it just a completely different story. Set the stage, because the basic frame of the story is the same. Right, and it's a play, so a stage has to be set. So the basic the basic premise of the story is that these two college friends, Karen Wright and Martha Doby, who in these three are played by Miriam Hopkins and Merle Oberon, they basically are down on their luck. They decide to go to Karen's like hometown and take this old farmhouse that her aunt left her and turn it into a boarding school. So they decide to like try their luck at this. 
They're joined in this endeavor by a local doctor named Joe Carden, who helps them renovate the place. And then he begins to date Karen. In these three, it, it's basically a love triangle. So he and Karen are together. Martha is in love with him. And then there's like a scandal involving this love triangle. Basically, a child sees something and she misinterprets what it means. So in the children's hour, it's pretty much the same setup then. Yeah, so in the children's hour, it's the same setup, except for, obviously, the actors are different. Audrey, Audrey Hepburn plays Karen, and Shirley MacLaine plays Martha. Wait, Shirley MacLaine? Yeah, Shirley MacLaine. Awesome. And, and Audrey Hepburn are both in this. The significant, the plot is exactly wait, wait, wait. Who the plays, same. Who plays the doctor? James Gardner plays the doctor, Joe. Um, yeah, so, you, yeah, you buried a lead there. Sorry, I forgot. How, how yeah. the heck have I not heard of this movie? The one crucial difference between these three and the children's hour, the setup is exactly the same. The crucial difference is, is that the love triangle is reimagined. Um, and so, like, there are things that they can't talk about in these three that they can talk about in the children's hour. Ah, I think I know how this love triangle is reimagined. Yeah, so... The, the the other similarity plot point between these two films is how horrible this child is. Like, I don't know, both child actors that they got to play inhabit this role in just, like, the most vicious way that you can imagine a child acting. Like, and I think the Children's Hour does a slightly better job of making us understand why she's acting this way. Like, she's clearly kind of a neglected kid. Like, she really wants her grandmother to pay attention to her. Her parents are not in the picture. She's clearly been shipped off to this boarding school that she doesn't want to be at. But, man, she acts out in, like, the worst ways. Like, she fakes having a heart attack. She, like, assaults another girl, like, almost breaks her arm. Like, she's, like, blackmailing kids and, like, making up lies about the teachers. Like, it's... Mary is, is, like, the worst. This is all stuff Tessa did as a child. So this is why Tessa knows it's the worst. This child is so bad that if Villanelle from Killing Eve was a real person, she'd be afraid of this girl. It's true. She's played very like small serial killer like type person. I think these movies are very interesting in what they're trying to say, especially about small towns and about the ways that scandals and rumors get started. Like I said, there is a major difference in the ending of both of these films. So I just want to throw that out there for anyone thinking about watching these together. But should they be watched together? Yes, I do think that they should be watched together because when you say together, do you mean on top of each other? Do you mean side by side no. or do you mean one after we the other? We watched one one night and then the next one the next night. Okay. But I I recommend it because it is a class in filmmaking to be able to see one director basically be able to come back to their work and redo it, not just based on the plot change, but even just like the technology in filmmaking had changed between the 30s and the 60s. He's able to do a lot more with camera work, with staging. Audrey Hepburn, like no no offense to Miriam Hawkins and Merle Oberon, but Audrey Hepburn and Shirley MacLaine are doing some like A plus acting work in this, especially Shirley MacLaine. She is she is just wonderful in this. She does such a great job. I don't know. I don't think either of these were nominated for anything, but I feel like Shirley Shirley MacLaine should have been nominated. She got one eventually. Right. Well, That's Audrey cool. Hepburn should have too. She she does an excellent job in this. I and I, there are very few Audrey Hepburn movies I haven't seen, but this was definitely one of them. 
So I highly recommend both of these films, but watching them together is a real treat, I think, if you're someone who likes to watch films like I do, who likes to see kind of the evolution of craft. So excited. I'm just I'm just I'm just actually excited. Like you you unknowingly hit on like multiple of my um of my like buttons that are like, oh, I'm interested in this. Yeah. Uh, I know I, mean, I like to joke that old things aren't good, but uh, Hepburn and McLean, like, oh, man. That's a good, it, it's a good combo. And I have to say, like, both of these have been on my list for a while. I didn't plan on watching them together this way. It's really the Criterion Collection and the fact that they were both leaving that got me to be like, oh, they're both leaving. I should watch them together. So, like, I do recommend actually watching them together, though. All right. It's been a while since we've all recorded together. I definitely wanted to talk about some of the big plans that all three of us have discussed to kind of let our listeners know some things that are upcoming, some of the exciting stuff we have coming up. People who are eagle-eared listeners who listened to last week's episode with YouTuber Probably Jacob, which uh, comes out tomorrow as of this recording, will know uh, I'm currently playing, or actually I just beat Elden Ring, and Tessa is also experiencing Elden Ring. And uh, I am Ring not is close to beating thing. it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so whenever Tessa gets around to rolling credits on it, maybe do a Elden Ring episode. No, I think we will. Even if I don't get through the whole thing, we'll do an Elden Ring episode. I've had an idea for a episode called Monkey Mixtape. Maybe a, um, a rock opera concept album edition. And that's an Andy Assigns. Uh, yes, yes. The thing is, is I only have like one rock opera I really want to do it is uh act two by the protoman it's a very 80s rock Ooh, opera. sam loves the 80s i know i know this is this would be a way of me forcing uh sam to listen to this really like like that's that that's pretty much the only reason <laughs> what's the i mean that is the only reason to do anything right is to force people to enjoy the things that you enjoy I, I think we need a seasonal limit on making sam listen to things so you know <laughs> yeah, like there yeah. has to be some space between this and the mountain goats Okay, people. I have an idea, a themed episode for bullshit art movies people tell you to watch. 2001 A Space Odyssey? That could be one. Um, I, I was thinking like French New Wave stuff. Oh. Um, I was thinking like Last Weekend in Mary and Bad. Um, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Sam, what are some things that you are looking forward to that we could see in Monkey's Future? Of course, the return of Tessa Watches Lost on Thursdays. That'll that'll come back. Uh, that will, of course, preface. So season four of Lost is what we're going to be watching. We're going to be watching the, <laughs> the soft <laughs> reboot of the show. Following season four, we'll, of course, begin our epic trek, if you will, through Star Trek The Next Generation. A couple of things that I've thought about. Later on this year, we'll be watching a bunch of Paul Verhoeven movies. I think you can expect uh, us to talk about a film or two, or at least I will. Mm. Uh, similarly, Harrison Ford. This is Tessa. Mm. I am assigning Tessa not for podcast reasons, just for Harrison Ford reasons, to watch a bunch of Harrison Ford movies that she's never seen before that are not franchise films. You got your Regarding Henry. You got your Witness. You got your Hollywood homicide, no. firewall, no crossing over, Air Force One. Get off my oh. plane. There's only no. enough room for no. a few films in one Harrison Ford themed episode, yeah. Andy. <laughs> yeah, 
What about the call of the wild? Please stop. <laughs> You're hurting me. What about Sabrina? That is also on the list. The Harrison Ford themed episode is a teaser, if you will, for the the big event, the third annual something number days of something. The third in a series will be the 11 days of Star Wars. That's right. Uh, why is Harrison Ford a teaser for that? Harrison because Ford Alden Ehrenreich hasn't Star made Wars. that many movies. <laughs> oh, was Harrison Ford in Star Wars? Yeah. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be doing a Westerns episode with Ryan from Movie John. I'm very, very excited about that. We are also going to have kind of excited our too. second guest hosted episode, Jack Assigns with Jack, of course. I am so excited. There are three films that I have never seen before. We're going to talk about those. I also have a camp-themed episode. That doesn't mean going to camp. That means that's so campy episode coming up a silent film themed episode in which i watched the great train robbery because i have never seen it i'm really excited to hear with people's experiences about silent films and of course there is also spooktober three will be coming up in october and then the thing that the project that i'm personally excited about since i am done with my dissertation for the most part i am really looking forward to reading contemporary science fiction that i haven't had a chance to really read while writing my dissertation and so i'm a huge fan of the hugo awards i actually am a voting member and i have been trying to catch up on my hugo awards nominees for this year so one of my personal projects is to do some reviews of some of the hugo nominated material between now and the ceremony in September. So you can look for that on the monkey website and it will culminate in a Hugo's themed app that will come out the week before the ceremony. So be looking for that. I know Lazzie is joining us for that particular episode as well. So those are some of the things you have to look forward to monkey listeners. All right. As we wrap up, where could people find you? Andy. You can find me online haunting the Twitters at Andy Noted. Sam? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we've talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.